Church, would you stand with me as you're able for our reading from scripture tonight? It comes from Luke chapter 20, one through eight. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's always an interesting thing to sing here in the power of Christ, I stand while I'm sitting. (laughs) Uh, Depending on where culturally uh, you live, the the whole idea of standing in worship is uh, relatively new, actually, if you look at church history. Uh, But I'm thankful when we get to stand in worship or sit in worship together. As we turn our attention to this uh, powerful text today that teaches us a whole lot as we're in this series just going through the Gospel of Luke. Let's just start with prayer. Father, we we come now as we turn our attention to your Word and we acknowledge that we need the power of your Holy Spirit to speak to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do just that. Would you speak, Lord? Your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, we all have a different reaction to the word authority. Even just saying the word authority brings up different ideas and different images in our mind. The very concept of authority is something that seems to be constantly questioned today. And all you have to do is really look at the news to see that it seems like uh, trust in authority figures seems like it's at an all-time low, at least for our context. And no longer is trust just kind of naturally or automatically given to people or built into systems that we go and work in or live in. Instead, trust uh, is something that, well, you have to earn it. Instead of it naturally being given, instead of trust is given to you and then it's yours to lose, it's something that you have to earn over time, it seems like. And within the complexity of life in the first century in Judea, there are a series of things at play that have to do with this theme of authority. And as you come to Luke 20, this is a major theme that runs through the entire chapter. For example, in the first century context that we're in right now, the Romans are doing what Romans do, and they are occupying Jerusalem and beyond at this time. And as the occupiers, they're enforcing certain rules on society, on Jewish life. 
But within this context, in the first century in Judea, you also have the Jewish leaders who are leading, and not only are they trying to lead and govern the people uh, as they are directed by the Torah, but now they have these Roman occupiers with them as well. So they're trying to lead and govern the people on one hand according to biblical standards, but then they also have Rome on the other hand, again, enforcing different rules. And as you can imagine, this creates a very tense situation. A very tense situation. In fact, first century Judea, was, it was as if one little small thing could just set things off so fast. So imagine living in all of that tension. Now, it is somewhat natural that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day would be a little skeptical of any authority figure or any authority system, for that matter, uh, who would show up on the scene that they did not put in place. Again, they are being occupied by the Romans at this time. Again, they're trying to lead and govern the people according to the Torah at this time. And it's very, very complex. So tensions are high when Jesus shows up. But because the Jewish leaders were so preoccupied with keeping their particular way of life secure, it turns out that they end up missing the fact that God has shown up among them. That God has shown up, He's shown up on the scene, and He's done so to manifest heaven's presence on earth and then establish an eternal kingdom. And as this moment comes, they are missing it. They are absolutely missing it. In verse 1, what we see in this text, we see three groups of people identified. One is the chief priest, two is the scribes, and three are the elders. And the chief priest, scribes, and elders, they make up the totality of political and religious life in the first century for the Jewish people. They are the total authority for governing and ruling the people, both politically and religiously. And these two things were not separated in the first century for the Jews. And they come to Jesus, and they have a problem. The first problem is that Jesus has displayed this kind of unique authority by just walking into the temple and cleansing the temple. He's driving out those who sold there. We saw that on Sunday. Second, though, we see repeated throughout the end of Luke is that the crowd is hanging on every word that Jesus is saying. And in verse 1, what we see here is that Jesus is in the temple and he's doing two particular things. Number one, the text says that he is teaching the people, but he's also preaching the gospel. Those two things are causing a stir, if you will. And the crowd is hanging on every word that Jesus speaks. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are watching this. And the chief priests, those are the ones who would have ruled the temple. The scribes would have been the scholars. The elders would have been the ones who ruled the people. And Jesus' actions, both in cleansing the temple and then showing up in teaching and preaching the gospel, probably set off a series of meetings where they came up with this plan. And the plan was simply to join forces and confront Jesus in a very public way. And what we see here is that in verse 2, they actually do not pose a question to Jesus. Instead, they come with a demand. And the demand that they want is they are demanding to know by what authority, by what authority does Jesus do what he does? And then where did he get that authority? Where did that authority come from? And again, that's a strand that runs throughout the entire chapter. And so you have this scene taking place where you have the people in authority questioning Jesus about his authority, and they're doing so simply because they feel threatened. 
And Jesus is gaining an influence. But his influence is not coming from a position of power. His influence is coming through a particular message. And so we see, verse 3, Jesus comes back with a question. While they're questioning him about the nature of his authority and then where did it come from, the origin of his authority, Jesus comes back in verse 3 and it says, He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now right here, it sounds like in one sense that Jesus is asking a question about John's ministry. He is, but the core of the question is a God question. He's asking, how do you recognize, or do you recognize, do you see God's involvement in John's ministry? Is it from heaven, or did this originate in the idea or the mind of a man? This is a God question he is asking the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. Now, Jesus is not trying to avoid the question. That's not what he's doing. He also exists within a shame-honor culture, by the way, in which asking questions back and forth was very normal. There's reasons for that. We can get into that later. But Jesus is not trying to avoid the question. Instead, he's trying to reveal the emptiness of the questioners. He's showing the people something about the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And so once again, they huddle up. They huddle up and they begin to have a conversation. But notice that their conversation is not about the answer that they need to give Jesus. Their conversation is about how do they answer Jesus' question. In verse 5, it says, And they discussed it with one another. Again, they huddled up. And they said, If we say from heaven, meaning this is of God, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they're caught in this dilemma. If we say God, it means this. And if we say not God, then the people are going to be upset because they're sitting there listening to this conversation. So they did what all good politicians do, and they come up with a non-answer. In verse 7, it says, so they answered that they did not know where it came from. Their response was to play dumb. We're just really not sure, right? We don't know. But as soon as they say this, in this moment, when the people in authority could not answer the question about was John's activity, did it originate in God or not, when they could not answer this question, they revealed their spiritual emptiness. They revealed the fact they could not see God on the move around them. And if your chief priest and your scribes, your theologians, and your elders can't see that God is on the move around you, all of a sudden their credibility begins to fall. And what they reveal is that instead of being people who seek truth, they reveal that they have been reduced to playing political games. And when people stop seeking truth and instead they seek to win arguments and play political games, they cannot be reasoned with. That's why Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Do not answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus knows that they are operating in foolishness. They are trying to play political games. And so, he refuses to answer their question. You do know you can refuse to answer a question, right? He refuses to answer their question, a God question. 
This is a question about God's activity on the earth. They can't even, they won't even give an answer to it. They won't say yes or no. And so Jesus says, okay, we're not going to play this game. Verse 8, he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, what Jesus does, instead of getting in this back and forth argument over the topic of authority, particularly his authority, instead of getting in that back and forth argument about authority with people in authority, Jesus simply refuses to answer the question. And we may look at this and we may say, well, why didn't Jesus just give them a simple answer, right? We say, well, if they're wanting to know, you know, by what authority he does this, why didn't he just say the Father's authority? Or if they say, well, where did you get this authority? Why didn't he just say, the Lord God of Israel, my Father, gave me this authority? He could have just simply answered the question, but he doesn't. And the question is, why? Why? Really, why doesn't he just give a simple answer to what seems to be a simple question. We know he knows the answer. I think the answer is that Jesus does not give them an answer because they do not want an answer. They really don't want an answer. They want an argument. They want a public argument. They want a public argument where they can try to catch Jesus talking in public about his relationship with the Father so they can bring him up on a charge of blasphemy simply by using the title, the name Father is going to get him in trouble. So they think we can just get him into this argument. He can answer this simple question. He will reveal uh, himself as claiming to be the Son. A charge of blasphemy can come. End of story. But the truth is, they're not seeking truth. They don't want an answer. They want an argument. And Jesus refuses to get in that argument. You see, when it comes to the topic of truth, and seeking truth, and searching for truth, and knowing truth, this passage tells us something important, and that is, is that they did not want to know the truth, because they didn't want an answer. They did not want to know the truth And it's that simple. They didn't want to know. They're trying to get in an argument, a back and forth, to catch him. But they didn't want to know. And they didn't know because they didn't want to know. You see, God's not hiding truth. We think he is so many times. We think truth is so hard to discover and so hard to find out there, but he's not. And they didn't know because they didn't want to know. You say, well, what were they wanting in this conversation? Again, they wanted an argument. And they wanted to win that argument because they wanted to stay in power. They wanted to stay in power and they would argue with anyone, anywhere, especially in public, in order to discredit them so that they can stay in power. And Jesus, is this is what he's doing. He's disrupting the power structure that they're living in. He's disrupting the power structure that they have built for themselves. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they rule over the people. And they would do anything to maintain that power. Now, Jesus could have walked up and claimed to have power over all people of all places, all times, the whole world in this moment. But instead, he chooses to influence them. Instead of going around trying to correct the chief priest, you know, and try to correct the elders and the scribes and correct all of that stuff. Instead, he goes to the people and he gives them a message. And at the core of the problem, the reason why these groups of people are coming to question Jesus, at the core, the problem is this thing called the gospel. 
The thing that is creating the most waves in the first century in Jerusalem, in Judea, as it's spreading throughout Galilee, the thing that's creating the most waves is this thing called the gospel. Again, verse 1, one day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. If Jesus had simply cleansed the temple and then kind of ran off to the hills, that's when the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they could have said, you know, he's just a madman. He's just a madman. He came in, he did this bad thing, you know, shame on him, but now he's gone. The problem is Jesus stayed. And not only did Jesus stay, Jesus taught. And not only did Jesus teach, but Jesus was teaching a particular message. And again, Luke tells us what it is. It is this thing called the gospel. Jesus is teaching people a good news they've never heard before. They've never heard this kind of good news. And it's changing their lives forever. It's changing their perspective forever. And because this change is taking place in the people, the religious leaders, the political leaders are watching this happen. And they see their power their influence, all of that slipping away right before them. Again, Jesus could have claimed a lot of things in this moment, but he let the power of the message carry the day. And you say, what is the gospel? What are they hearing? We know what that is. The people are hearing about this one and only true and holy God who made everyone, all people in his image and likeness. They're hearing this message again. They're hearing about this one who created us, but he created us so that we may enjoy him and live for him forever, live in his presence forever. But they're also hearing about reality. They're hearing about the brokenness of this relationship that we had with God. They're hearing about the reality of our sin and the separation that we've experienced, the same separation that our first parents, Adam and Eve, experienced. They're hearing about that too, because that's a part of the gospel. They're also hearing about this son that Jesus is claiming to be, that he has now shown up on the scene. He was sent from the Father. He was sent to do something for them that they could not do for themselves. He's telling them this message. And they're hearing about what Jesus has been preaching about since he began his ministry. And you know as you look at the beginnings of the Gospels, Mark and Luke, Matthew, other places, Jesus begins his ministry with this simple message of repent. And believe the gospel. This good news that I'm revealing to you. This gospel meaning history changing event. Something now has happened on the planet that's never happened before. And Jesus is revealing this to them right here again in the temple. And waves are being created. A commotion now is happening. A stirring is taking place with the religious leaders, with the political leaders of Israel. And they do not like it. And this public confrontation simply results in Jesus asking a question that they cannot or they refuse to answer. And because they could not answer that question, Jesus demonstrates for everyone who's watching, again, that the religious and political leaders of Israel in that day, they were unfit and unqualified to carry those titles. And he's also revealing that they are unfit to even ask him that question. He's showing who he is in a very unique way. And again, the question that they cannot answer is what is God doing in your midst right now? Was that work through John? Was that really God? Can you see God? Can you see him on the move? Can you identify him 
when his work is on display? And they said, we don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you about myself either. Where all this authority comes from that I carry. Because they're not going to believe it. Because again, they don't want an answer. They want an argument. This encounter, we read it and we, you know, most of the time go, whoo, I'm glad I'm not them. But this encounter makes us ask or should make us ask some serious questions. Those questions have to do with our view of and our submission to authority. And as we read this story, I think we have to ask ourselves, do we do the same thing that the chief priest and the scribes and the elders do? Do we make the same mistake? Do we live with underlying questions and su- suspicion about Jesus and His Lordship? Do we live with underlying questions and suspicion about Jesus' kingship in our life? <clears throat> you know, I think our view of God, particularly His authority, our view of God's authority in our life is directly linked to our understanding of His name. Of His name. You see, Jesus is asking a question of the religious people who are supposed to know God intimately. One of the most basic ways in which you know a human being is you know their name. And names, of course, have meanings and they reveal much. But I think there's a direct link between our view of God's authority in our life and our understanding of His name. Are we on a name-to-name basis, first-name basis with God? If you think about God's name, to know God's name is to know how He has revealed Himself. And we have to know God's name if we're truly going to know Him. He's revealed himself as Yahweh, but not always. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It's the name that he revealed to Moses. Yahweh speaks to this God who is eternal, unique, unchanging, who is always present with his people. Yahweh speaks to God's role as Israel's redeemer and covenant Lord. And I point this out about Yahweh being his name. Because in Isaiah 42 verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, that is my name. If you want to know me, God says, you have to know me as Yahweh. You have to know me as Yahweh. And again, that name, he, when he talks to Moses, Exodus 3, 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. We read that and we go, what does that even mean? But he says to him, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations in this way. So when God reveals his name, he's revealing all of who he is to the people. And again, Jesus shows up to the people who are to know the name of God and therefore know who God is and what he's like and what he does and what it looks like when he's on the move and they can't tell him. Yeah, that's God on the move in John. And it reveals they have lost their understanding of God's name. 
And because they've lost the understanding of God's name, they've lost a lot of things, including an understanding of God's authority over them. And so they don't recognize Jesus for who He is. I say that God revealed this to Moses. He says this in Exodus 3, 14 and 15. Even though the name Yahweh was used previously in Genesis 4, 26, what we see, God makes an interesting comment to Moses. In Exodus 6, 2 and 3, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. You see, a pivotal shift took place in the Exodus and what God was doing through Moses and the people of Israel because He revealed Himself in this new and beautiful way as they're on their way to establishing the promised land. And then in Deuteronomy 28, we see that God's name is to be feared because it is glorious and awesome, Deuteronomy 28, 58, and 59 says. But then it also says the Lord will bring on you, if you do not view God's name in this way, He'll bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. And we say, what is that all about? Well, you got to remember, God's now revealed His name. He has revealed His name, and God is saying, now that you know, you are responsible for what you know. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to the chief priest and the scribes and the rulers. You're supposed to know, and you're responsible to know when something is of God. You're supposed to know His name and all the authority that that carries. And instead they say, we don't know. And in doing so, they say, we don't know Him. We really don't know Him. You see, this question of authority, I think there's this direct link with knowing His name. When you know the name of God, when it's not just this ethereal, hypothetical thing that's out there, when you know the name of God, when you know who God is, how He's revealed Himself, who He has revealed Himself to be, that's when you know, that's when you realize the authority that He has. And that's when we, now that we know this, we have to ask ourselves questions like, are we questioning God's authority? Where am I living in rebellion to God's authority? Where am I saying, God, I want my will to be done, not yours? Because we know His name. We know the I am and all that comes with the I am. And now we know we're responsible for what we know. I've talked to many people who will say, you know, is God on a power trip? <laughs> you know, he, he talks about his power and his authority. Well, no, he just, he just is the I am. God can just not not be powerful and all-knowing and in control. He just can't unless he restrains himself in some way and then chooses to reveal himself in another way. But God's not on a power trip. Andrew Murray said, would you allow other people to be the master in the home that you dwell in? You never would, and yet, alas, you allow so much else to occupy the heart 
and have the place alone that is meant for God. And so many times that is true. So true. And so we have to bring ourselves back to these moments where we ask ourselves, are we letting Yahweh, are we letting the I Am rule and reign? Do we see Him in all of who He is and all the authority that He has? And are we submitting ourselves to that? Or are we playing the role of the chief priest and the scribes and the elders who've been entrusted with such knowledge to carry the name of God, display the name of God, and know Him in intimate ways and know how He moves and works, and yet we just give the I don't know answer. It's a beautiful thing to have an encounter with God. It's a beautiful thing for God to be revealed to you and then it comes with this awesome responsibility of recognizing who's really in charge. And so my prayer is that we would live today, tomorrow, and each day under His authority, not because we're scared of Him, but because we know who He is. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You. As we sit here tonight in this beautiful space, Your name is more beautiful. And Father, we forgive, would You forgive us of those moments when we say, Lord, I want my will over Yours. Forgive us for those moments when we play the role of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We don't recognize You on the move. We don't recognize Your presence among us. We've lost our understanding of Your name and the authority that it carries. So Lord, would You give us a healthy perspective? May we see You for who You are. And may we live with Your rule and reign ever before us. Lord, we love You. We really do. We thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said.